from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. On this Studio 360 Podcast Extra, we are presenting a special series of stories about science and creativity. We're looking into the question of whether animals, animals who aren't human, have culture. And here is our third and final part of the current series. The fish wade through black jade. Of the crow glue mussel shells, one keeps adjusting the ash heaps opening and shutting itself like an injured fan. That is Marianne Moore. The barnacles, which encrust the side of the wave, cannot hide there, for the submerged shafts of the sun split like spun glass. She was a giant in American poetry in the last century. Despite writing notoriously difficult poems, Moore became famous, famous enough to throw the first pitch at a Yankees game at age 80 in 1968. Along with baseball, Moore was also a big nature buff. She read natural history, went to biology lectures, and she especially loved the American Museum of Natural History in New York, where she would study the dioramas of habitats. She liked to talk to animal experts and to kids visiting the museum. In a series of poems from the 1930s, she wrote about some of the exotic animals she found there. The Arctic ox the pangolin, which resembles an armadillo, and the jerboa, a a giant-eared rodent that looks like a cartoon character. Here's Moore reading her poem, Rigorists, about reindeer. We saw reindeer browsing, a friend who'd been in Lapland said, finding their own food. They are adapted to scant rhino or pasture, yet they can run 11 miles in 50 minutes. The feet spread when the snow is soft and act as snowshoes. They are rigorists. However handsome... With all the details she packs in there, it sounds almost like a Wikipedia page in verse. And that's partly the point. Since Aesop's fables, people have projected human characteristics onto animals. The brave lion, the cunning fox, the wise owl. Marianne Moore was interested in what animals are actually like. She thought science could be the stuff of poetry as well. And if there was a moral to the particular story, she let it come out of the animal's actual behavior. Here she is reading from her poem, The Wood Weasel, which is not actually an animal. It's her personal rebranding of the skunk. The wood weasel emerges daintily, the skunk, don't laugh, in sylvan black and white chipmunk regalia. The inky thing, adaptively whited with glistening goat fur, is Woodwarden. In his ermined, well-cuttlefish ink wool, he is determination's totem. Outlawed, his sweet face and powerful feet go about in chieftain's coat of chillcat cloth. He is his own protection from the moth, noble little warrior. That otter skin on it, the living polecat, smothers anything that stings. Well, this same weasel's playful, and his weasel associates are too. Only wood weasels shall associate with me. Artists depicting animals in scientifically accurate ways is still kind of an avant-garde move, just as it was in Marianne Moore's time. The show will resume very, very shortly, But first, I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Studio360Show. And now, back to the podcast. 
From Aesop to Br'er Rabbit to Disney, we like animals to talk like us, think like us, and... Repeat after me. Give us easy life lessons. Hakuna Matata. What? It means no worries. Studio 360's Sarah Lilly spoke with two artists who are trying to buck the anthropomorphic conventions, imagining animals' lives as the animals might see them. If you grew up loving Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner, or even Charlotte's Web... The new novel, called The Bees, is a different animal entirely. Some reviewers have dubbed it the watership down for the Hunger Games generation. I asked author Lillian Paul to read a little excerpt. With a hard, erratic pulse in the ground, a young female came running down the corridor between the cells, her face frantic. Halt! Harsh voices reverberated from both ends of the corridor and a strong, astringent scent rose into the air. Every bee stopped moving, but the young bee stumbled and fell across Flora's pile of debris. Then she clawed her way into the remains of the broken cell and huddled in the corner, her little hands up. Cloaked in a bitter scent which hid their faces and made them identical, the dark figures strode down the corridor towards Flora. Pushing her aside, they dragged out the weeping young bee. At the sight of their spike gauntlets, a spasm of fear in Flora's brain released more knowledge. They were police. You fled inspection. One of them pulled at the girl's wings while another examined the four still wet membranes. The edge of one was shriveled. Spare me, she cried. I will not fly. I will serve in any other way. Deformity is evil. Deformity is not permitted. Before the bee could speak, the two officers pressed her head down until there was a sharp crack. She hung limp between them and they dropped her body in the corridor. You, a peculiar rasping voice addressed Flora and she did not know which one spoke but stared at the black hooks on the back of their legs. Hold still. Long black calipers slid from their gauntlets and they measured her height. Excessive variation. Abnormal. Flora turns out to be a laying worker bee. That's a term for the rare worker who can lay eggs. Now, only the queen is really authorized to spawn. And the beehive is pretty totalitarian in its vibe. The fertility police do band together in small groups and go hunting down the laying worker, and they do kill her and eat the eggs. I stuck as far as I could to the truth of the biology of the organism because that really is wilder than anything you could make up. Laleen Paul takes these biological facts but creates this emotional, action-packed drama. On the other hand, we have Jim Trainer. Jim's a Chicago filmmaker who's mainly known for these fantastic hand-drawn cartoons of animals. They're on 16-millimeter film, all black and white with this flickery, old-timey feel. Really, they're pretty cute. But the animals aren't wearing clothes or going to jobs or holding hands. No soap operas here. Just factual events delivered as deadpan as possible. The film that I started doing this animal theme is called The Bats. The bat in my movie is just kind of describing all the things in his life. He likes to eat earthworms, and he likes to fly around at night. Uh, He has all these carnal pleasures that he's sort of describing sort of dryly. I was three wet seasons old when I first detected the wonderful odor. What was it? Like sweat and moonlight and mashed up moths. It was coming from her sexual opening. That spring, I had sexual intercourse with 42 different girls. 
Yeah. The the narration is the only thing that sort of anthropomorphizes them. I mean, their behavior is enacted on screen is basically naturalistic. I take a kind of a Darwinian worldview and nature to me seems quite ugly. Um, so I, I like to sort of emphasize that aspect of it. For instance, there's a phenomenon among lions that um, when a lion takes over a pride, he goes around and he kills all the lion cubs and um, then he mates with all the lionesses. I killed my girlfriend's children, which is to say I killed all the children of all of my girlfriends. It's sort of like, yeah, if you just put the mouth on them, then all of this would come out just the way it comes out of a human. And I feel like that's not true. Not, <laughs> not true. <laughs> Alexandra Horowitz is awesome, and she's got a great sense of humor, but she's also totally bumming my cartoon high. She's a cognitive scientist who studies animal behavior at Barnard. She's also written about the behavior of people studying animal behavior. To quote, In studies of animal behavior, there is near official consensus about anthropomorphizing. It is to be avoided. Now, I'm a crazy dog person, so I actually laughed. It's, it's great that you thought that was a funny paper, because I doubt that it's ever been read as a paper of humor. I mean, we're, we take it as a sort of serious matter to be wrangled with and pinned down under our feet, and artists, you know, anthropomorphize with impunity. So Lillian Paul's book, The Bees... She does seem to superimpose, you know, some human drama on it. On the other hand, there's a lot of conveyance of, you know, facts about bees, which is kind of fantastic to get people into the hive, as it were, and sort of get them interested in that. Is it the kind of book you would ever read? Probably not, no. I mean, I, I do know I am fascinated by bees, but I tend to read, like, um, scientific works on bees. <laughs> the, the bee manual. Yeah. <laughs> But what's okay, some things are more difficult, and I don't have any fantasy that just by observing or really having an understanding of the biological reality of a species' life, that then you know what it's like to be that species. But there is some grace in dropping the thing that we carry around with us all time, our humanness, and just trying to observe. But come on. Drop our humanness? Who can do that? I mean, Lillian Paul and Jim Trainer are trying to present animals accurately. But imagining how others feel, other people, other creatures? That's being human at its best, right? I can't help but think of Lillian Paul out in her garden with her magnifying glass. It's awesome, truly. There are miracles and works of art all around us. And I think writing the bees gave me a reason to stop and lie on the ground and just stare at what was happening right in front of me and see it for the first time again. That story was produced by Sarah Lilly. You can see one of Jim Trainer's movies at studio360.org. And we are now done with our special science and creativity series about animals. The series was produced with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Very special thanks as well to Sophia Wynn for her research help. And thank you very much for listening. You can listen to dozens more stories we've done about science and creativity at studio360.org.
Thanks for listening. And you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.